0: I would like to tell black women out there that there is so much love and care that we may not have in our lives at the moment that can be found within ourselves instead of trying to find it in others.
1: Welcome to At Home In The Mind. We interrupt our scheduled programme to amplify black voices. This is the season finale. At the end of this interview, I will give more information on When to Expect Season 2, Warning. This episode touches on suicide, violence, police brutality, and racism. Listener discretion is advised. As ever, I would like to stipulate that myself and the guests who come on this show can only talk from our own perspective, understanding that everyone experiences life and mental health issues in different ways. Thank you for listening. Hi Theo, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, it's weird to meet someone for the first time, like this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, it's been really strange. I've I've met a lot of people through Zoom calls over the past few months and it's, yeah, it's really interesting to then meet them in real life as well. Who have you been meeting on Zoom calls? I'm in recovery, so I do a lot of meetings and in those meetings I meet a lot of people from all over the world, actually, and... um, it's just amazing to hear like different people's stories and just what they're up to and how they're also doing the same thing, like stuck at home, furloughed, like looking for books to read, any rec- Netflix recommendations. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting and fun. So were you furloughed? Uh, no, I was actually in between two jobs. So I had handed in my notice of a job, wasn't garden leave and was due to start a new job. They foolishly hadn't signed the contract. I'd signed me off the letter. And they rescinded the offer, so that left me jobless, So, which has been fine. I've been taking lots of time reflecting on myself. I've never done so many face masks in my entire life. (laughs) Amazing. It's been good. It's been good. I started a new course as well in like this tech world that I'm trying to get into. It's been really good. It's been really good. Awesome. I'm
1: so glad. That's great. Because, you know, part of starting this podcast was me worrying that people would... Isolate. You know the whole thing about isolating is that for people with mental health issues, is that it can be very dangerous. So I'm glad to hear that you've been thriving.
0: I think I've been thriving. My bank account is not. (laughs) (laughs) um.
1: Okay. You briefly said that you are in recovery. Do you mind going into that story in however much detail you feel comfortable with? um, When you started recovery and how that's been for you, and how have you found it? maneuvering through that world as a young black woman
0: yeah of course I came into recovery last year in August I didn't get it straight away I had a mental picture of what an addict was and that wasn't me I was successful I lived in central London I was dating that wasn't as successful (laughs) um and I just, I I thought I party too much. I thought I didn't really have an issue, but I did, I did, I really did. And um, I battled with it for a while, like, am I, aren't I? I've got all these other diagnoses, like borderline personality disorder. I was like, maybe it's just that. I was taking all different kinds of prescriptions to try and like balance it out, but using on top of it, it just, it just made me psychotic. And it, yeah, it wasn't great, to say the least. And then coming into... We call the meetings. We call them the rooms. Coming into the rooms, I didn't see many people that looked like me. I used to go to a meeting in the city in the morning, and it was bankers and like IT guys and suits and stuff that I, like, I don't belong there with their families. Like, I cheated on my wife, or I almost lost my job, or like I was going to. And I was I worked in a startup, but like over in Holborn, like a young black woman, like this isn't me at all. But then they talked about like how how their thinking was, I really resonated with that. The never fitting in, these like people, I'm just like, you're just like everyone else, but they didn't fit in either. I'm like, and I'd always not fit in from like a really young age. So hearing that kind of changed my my thoughts on recovery. And I've always been a person that doesn't really see race. Gender I see a lot, but race definitely has never really been a thing. My parents didn't raise me, like my colour was my colour was like I had to watch out for. It. I'll get into that later, actually. Um, so yeah. I started to like look at these people and just like see that I could. I was kind of just like them, and I needed. I needed to identify with them at all in order to understand like the issues that I was going through. So I sat back, I shut up, and I listened for once in my life, <laughs> and it turned out really. It turned out really well for me, actually. I've had a couple of relapses due to some issues going on in my life that I've actually surrendered to now. And I'm just over three months back and I'm doing really, really well. I cannot tell you how good it feels to Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's just really, really, it's really good to be sober and to be clean. And I found lots and lots of women in the rooms who look like me, act like me have the same issues as me, coming from an African household, you don't turn up and be like, hi, I have a mental illness and I'm an addict. It does not go down well. Right. right.
1: <laughs> Why is that, do you think? Where does that come from? What's the, what's the foundation for that?
0: There's no such thing as mental illness. Just sit down, shut up, brace, brace yourself. It's life, get on with it. It's just through and through. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my aunts, my mum, dad, my dad's It's just, yeah, it's just not a thing like it's just a thing that weak people use as a crutch to because they can't handle life right that's what that's what it's taught as in my house or was taught as, well still is to a certain extent I don't think my family truly accept that I actually have a problem I think it's more the fact that they find they they've accepted that I've found something to help me right Okay. Not that I necessarily have this massive issue. It's like, oh, she's finally stopped like messing up so much in her life. And if that's what keeps her quiet, then we'll go along with it. Right. But yeah, they're happy that I'm no longer calling at three o'clock in the morning.
1: And do you think that that attitude in general, the sort of like shut up, carry on, comes from a need to just keep your head down and keep moving, don't attract attention to yourself?
0: Oh yeah! Don't bring any shame on the family. Don't show that you're weak. Like if you were weak, as staying in my house, I heard a lot was "Don't cry, or I'll give you something to cry about." That okay. was so stop, stop acting up. Basically, just trying to simulate and just be normal. But anything that goes on in the home as well, don't talk about it outside of the home. Definitely okay. a thing as well. Like be careful about what you tell others. Okay. So if any disorders going on in the home as well, just like stay quiet, keep to yourself, keep it moving, keep it going, do well, and it will be fine type thing, even though it wasn't. Right. Yeah, I think that's where that comes from.
1: And you mentioned previously that you've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and then as well as finding the rooms. How did you do that? How did you find those discoveries on your own, it seems, if you know your family were trying to hide or not acknowledging mental health in general?
0: So... The borderline personality disorder. I was very depressed. I got signed off from work. I was very depressed, and I had a suicide attempt. And I was sectioned. Okay. And in that section, and that's where they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. And I was there for, I think, just under a month. Yeah, and that's when they came up with the with the diagnosis. And then, yeah, it was on the NHS. and My kind of got lost in the cracks. Mm. I'd managed to get onto two different GP surgeries. And so I was just going back and forth between the two and just, and then my mental health was declining. And I didn't link the fact that I was abusing the prescriptions they were giving me (laughs) to. My mental health declining because I was like, oh, this is going to fix me. So I need two of them. Yeah.
1: Okay. And for those who aren't aware, could you describe as clearly as you can what they meant when they diagnosed you with borderline? Personality disorder?
0: So, from my understanding, I haven't done too much actual research on it. I just kind of hope and pray that I don't try and kill myself every day. So, basically, I can be quite erratic. I can be very hurt at the slightest inconvenience, really. So I think someone once described it as just basically my skin is like open flesh. And so, words are like pouring salt onto them and I take it so deeply. So, the most common disorder that i know is um bipolar and they it, it, it can be like misdiagnosed between the two so it can be very erratic and then very sad mm. but for me with bipolar i believe there's the moods can last for quite long whereas borderline personality disorder i can go through all of those moods in a day wow okay and it can be very erratic like wake up completely fine in the afternoon like really really low and then fine again in the evening sounds exhausting um, oh god it's exhausting absolutely exhausting i I don't know how I did it for so long. It's just really painful, really painful. But yeah, and then other traits as well, like very erratic, erratic spending, making travel plans that really don't fit with anything like in mm-hmm. the middle of a week. Yeah, just very erratic, basically. Okay.
1: Also, you know, this attitude you mentioned from your own family, do you think that that's why when you first went into the rooms, you didn't see a lot of people who looked like you?
0: Yeah, I go to a few meetings where it's just for black women and we say that over and over again. It's very difficult. To break away from that mentality that you're raised with. Just like you're told not to spit on people. Like it's the thing that you know, not. it's what you're told. It's not something you learn at school, it's something you learn at home. And so you take it as gospel. Mm -hmm. Mental illness is a sign of weakness. There's nothing wrong with you. Buck up, everything's going to be okay. And so you just just try and live that life. Try and live that life. Something's wrong, bury it, bury it, bury it. It'll be fine. But -hmm. you don't deal with your emotions. I didn't know what a hug was for years. Like I think I learned about Huggles in secondary school. Like, we, we, weren't, we weren't a house like that at all. And, yeah, just emotions aren't a thing we talk about. Going for dinner at friends' houses and the mum's, like... Or, like, just stuff on, like, the fridge, like, pinned up with hearts to, like, love you, mummy. That's just not... It just yeah. didn't happen, like, yeah. in my house at all. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of Afro-Caribbean households are like that as well, from what I've heard in the rooms From being
1: in the, in the rooms and, be, and being in the, in the world of mental health and recovery have you identified anything that could help the black community in the uk to to rise above all
0: of that um well if we could remove the stigma that mental illness is a weakness i just it's not you're just just like people get asthma people get mental illness it's not it's something you are born with or sometimes it can develop later in life depending on external circumstances if you're born in the Cotswolds, the chances of you developing inner-city asthma are a lot lower. Just like if you are experienced to trauma, the possibility of you getting a mental illness is heightened. And I just think that people just don't get that. Yeah. And what we, in the black community, for me, I'll speak for myself, is that when we experience trauma, it's normalised. So be it violence, be it drug addiction be it poverty, which can be traumatising to children, absolutely traumatising, especially in this day and age where everyone's got to have diamond-encrusted Rolexes as, like, a normal thing by the time you're 18. Right, Okay, Um, Because they see it on, like, the rap videos and, like, all of this and, like, in social media and stuff. It's just, like, yeah, fast money. And it's just, it's just such pressure, on children today, like see I have a younger brother, he's 11 years younger than me, and he's like, oh, I want this, I want man. I'm just like, I don't understand, like, yeah, sorry, I've kind of gone off topic a little no, bit. No, 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 but, it, but it,
1: it, it ties in, you know, um, I'm assuming what you're alluding to is the role of social media in young people's mm-hmm. lives and all these influences, like, showing off all these gums they've got. And it's just like, well, they've got those because they've got a certain amount of followers and they get them for free. You know, they don't, they, yeah. they're not buying them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, all this sort of fake life that you see that you think that you need to, to fulfill is yeah. re- it's really dangerous. And um,
0: Yeah. And that can feed into the um so if you come from a home that's struggling, a two-parent two household with the median average, I think the median average is like 80k or something. And if you're putting your children through school, school uniform, trainers, PE kits, food, it's difficult in the best of times, let alone with like the pressure of the outside world. I remember when I was younger, I wanted, I can't remember, what, I wanted something. It was ridiculous, like a horse or something like that. <laughs> I didn't get it. I remember my mum being like, well... I think Christina had one, so I wanted one. My mum was like, she can pay for your ballet lessons, your tap lessons, your, we're putting money into like, other things. And even then, I, was, I, grew, I grew up quite privileged. Like, it's not like we were struggling. For, so, But for that pressure to, for me to be putting on my parents mm. and money being an issue and stuff and still having like, to battle a, a relationship as well and being immigrants coming from another country... And all of that and this bratty little kid turning up being like, I want a horse, why can't I have one? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just a lot. And I think I, I remember being 24 and texting my mum, I'd just come home from work. I was putting food on for me and my boyfriend. I was taking the washing out, I was doing all of that. And I, I, didn't have, I still didn't have children. And just texting her and being like, I didn't realise how hard it was for you to run a household and to do all the things that you did. And like not have a mental breakdown, basically. I just I took it for granted a lot. And I think even today with the kids take it for granted as well of how hard everyone works in order to make sure food's on the table. Yeah. Again I've gone off topic slightly. <laughs> but
1: if that's but if that's never communicated again about, you know, mental health and being open and being vulnerable, if that's never communicated, then how do you expect kids to understand what's going yeah. on? Yeah.
0: It's so true. And in my house, we definitely the kids should not be seen and not be heard. And then there were dark conversations that people had that were completely, that I would listen to not understand and then be angry about. Mm. Because you're not included in the conversation. So you don't really understand what's going on. And so Mm -hmm. you draw your own conclusion and then you're like, oh, dad's being mean to mum type thing. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You see what's on the surface and not what Actually, she's going on.
0: Yeah. Totally. So just like more communication and just less stigma around mental health would be such a relief. Mm-hmm. And just to take it away. I'll say like when I was, um, was institutionalised, my mum came to visit and I wasn't talking to her because I didn't want her to see me there. And they'd let me go, give me like a half a day release, a couple of hours I was allowed to leave. It was quite unfortunate. From where I was hospitalised, I could see my actual bedroom window. My oh my, fa- oh my
1: yeah, God. Yeah,
0: so that wasn't fun. And I'd gone back to the flat for something and then my mum came to visit and they said that she was just, the nurse at the station said that my mum broke down and was so sad. The nurse thought it was because my mum was so sad to have me in there, but I think from my understanding, speaking to my aunt who was with her at the time, it was more the shame which is really, really difficult to hear. And then the, the nurse being like, your mum really loves you. I'm like, no, I know what it is. I know what it is. It's not that. It's, it's the shame around it. When my aunt being there, my mum can't hide it under the carpet, pretend everything's okay. It's not fun. She has a little bit more understanding about it now. She sees the therapist. Um, okay. That sounds like a huge improvement. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but I think work kind of pushed it on her. She sees, so it's through her work. So, her mental health took a slight decline as well. I think she understands like talking about it is okay, but the medication thing that's never going to happen right. she's never going right. to go on pills or anything like that or admit right. that she has an issue. I think talking therapies is a lot more a lot more accepted because in Ghana, where I 'm from, we have oral history, so it's like passed down with stories, and so reliving stories and talking about stories in that way is just it's a lot more accepted
1: mm, That's beautiful having so many stories to pass down. I love that. So I was trying
0: to think of some the other day because I was feeling broody and I needed to recall <laughs> all of my childhood nursery stories that I've heard in order to pass down to my children that I don't have. And we've got like a few, like a little, so I've got a Nancy the spider, which is just like a beautiful little tale as well. And it's just, it's, it's really, it's really, really nice. But it's actually about this woman who, was the, who became the first chief in her village and it's all about empowering women Oh, um,
1: wonderful.
0: That's yeah, great. Yeah. In Ghana, women, actually, are the leaders. So if, you, if I was to marry, the power of our family, so they say, well, the essence of our family comes down through my lineage, even though I have an older brother, like I'm the matron, technically. That's fucking
1: awesome. Why is that not yeah. everywhere?
0: <laughs> <That's> yeah, right. <laughs>
1: I mean, look at New Zealand. They have a woman uh, president, and they're they're fucking great. They're sailing. (laughs) sailing. Yeah, the only people to beat Corona. (laughs) Exactly. She did it with like a
0: newborn,
1: right? (laughs) I know, she's amazing. She's just amazing. Back on topic, sorry about that. You mentioned that maybe this didn't have a role to play, but did racism or systematic racism have a role at all to play in your declining mental health?
0: For me... Not really. This is going to be quite controversial. I had a conversation with a friend recently who said that I had something he had defined as black privilege. I have never been stopped in the street. I've never been stopped and searched. I've never, well, not to, to my knowledge. I guess I will never know. Been passed up on a job because of the color of my skin. I've right. never. I've I've never had like really. Direct racial slurs been said to me. People have said ignorant things in my presence, but no one's ever been like angry towards me and mm. stuff. And my parents really, kudos to them, raised me that I'm a beautiful black queen who can do whatever she wants. And yes. so I just kind of, I don't know if it's just like self entitlement, maybe, <laughs> but I've just always thought, okay, I'll, I'll put, if I put my mind to it and work hard, I can get it. I have no barriers. And so I've never really thought of race as being like a barrier for me. So my friend was saying because I haven't gone through all those like struggles, I guess, of having to fight my way to get to, I don't know, to get to where I am. Like I had a tutor, I had, I had the things that I guess a lot of people don't have access to. Right. And I think that has helped me along the way. However, I have my best friend who, we've been best friends since she was eight. She lives in Atlanta now and has done, like, since she was, like, 15. And her story, even though our parents kind of gave us, like, the same lifestyle, was completely different to mine. She gets pulled over all the time. She's been called the N-word, like, to her face, like, in the grocery store trying to pick up, God, know, like, bread or whatever she is trying to pick up. And I know it's not because she's hanging out in, like, areas with lots of race, like, she doesn't go down to, like, the deep south, like, where um, Ahmad Aubrey was killed. She doesn't live too far from there, but she would never go there, she said. "So why would I go and put myself in front of a bunch of racists? Yes. And it's just, like, to think about that. But then my, and then I was, I've been thinking about it a lot. If I plan to go on a holiday, I saw this on the Instagram the other day, and I do do this, I'll look up how racist that country is before planning a holiday. Like, how how fucked up is that? yeah it was maybe something not consciously that I do but I'm like oh I don't I can't be asked with that like I don't want to I don't want to have to deal with that and that's yeah. and that's interesting for me to and I've been looking at other stuff I love the Black Lives Matter movement and I I know I haven't done enough myself I haven't been to protests etc because like it's very selfish like I really want to see my nan soon, so I just I just don't want to be carrying anything. Or my mum, who's like not hundred percent, so I really don't want to be carrying things to anyone. And I lost my grandpa about months ago now to COVID as well, so oh, for I'm me sorry. it's like very. Thank you. For me, it's like very much an issue that that's not dead. Yeah. And so, so yeah, that's my yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, you know, we all do what we can. I'm in a similar boat to you. I live with my fiance and his parents and his dad is very vulnerable you know he had a mini stroke during this lockdown and so we're like we are still very much isolating you know we are it's taking a long time for us to even think of socially distancing with anyone so I completely get where you're coming from but yeah we we all do what what we can really and if you don't just like you, you get taught in recovery if you don't look after yourself then you can't possibly be there for anyone else so
0: yeah. Don't stop exactly. feeling bad about that. <laughs> um, I donated though. I donated.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. You do what you can. Um, I, I, the best post I've seen about all of this was, we need people to donate. We need people to sign. We need people to be artists and talk about it. We need people to be politicians and shout about it. We need people on the streets. Don't feel like you have to be in every lane. We need someone mm. in we need one person in every lane. You know that was that was the best thing I saw because there was so much pressure that you're not doing enough, you're not anti-racist enough, mm. and I just really liked that post because it was really taking mental health into
0: consideration. <laughs> and I don't want to shake like, again selfishly. I don't want to. I think the far right are going to be marching this weekend. In I don't want to be putting myself in harm's way personally yes. going yeah. up against people who in my opinion have a form of mental illness like how can you hate someone that much that you don't want them to to exist or just to live or to come in over here taking our jobs when was the last time you swept like were a road sweeper or like wanted to do like any of these jobs that keep our country ticking over yeah yeah i've got no plans myself to be marching against and putting myself in any in harm's way
1: Spoke about America briefly, how you know, how has that hit you? Everything that's been going on there?
0: So as I said, my best friend lives in Atlanta. Ahmad Aubrey's killing. So as I said, my friend lives not too far from there and I run. I run every morning. And we used to run together like on a patch and that she lives like it's like a road that comes down, and it's kind of like a cul-de-sac. And the video of that as he turned the corner, that could have been me. That freaked me out so much. I live in Ladbroke Grove, so it's not probably not going to happen as I'm running down to Holland <laughs> Park. But I did, I stopped running for a couple of days. It hit me so hard. I called her, I was like, don't run, don't go outside. She's not a runner, so there wasn't actually much much chance of her going out for a run. But yeah. it hit me hard, that It could have been... And I'm, I'm a nosy bugger like that. I would go and see a pre-construction site and go and have a look. I just, I do stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. I wonder what's going to go. And then carry on with my run. I've done it a thousand times. One well, thing, not a thousand, but I've done it lots of times. And then for someone based on the color of my skin to assume that I'm stealing or, I mean, I don't know how to steal. I mean, I got caught at Woolworths growing up, stealing penny sweets. Like, I'm not good at that. Like, And it's just the assumption that I'm doing something wrong because you don't like the look of me. Yeah. It, it hit me. So, and then to be shot and killed, and the staggering when he fell, it just, it got me. It got me. I was I was in turmoil internally. I just couldn't believe someone's life was taken away like that. I really couldn't. And then weeks later, to have George Floyd killed like that, And I've seen a footage of a different angle of it. And it's this guy standing there being like, check his pulse, check his pulse. He's not breathing, he's not moving. And then for the EMTs to come and them not to also do it. And it was just the fact that he was just, he's just another piece of shit. Just get him up, let's load him up. He'll probably end up in some institute, incarcerated for 36 years or something for a fake twenty-pound note. Because they didn't see, they didn't see him as a person. Yeah. It's that systematic racism that's just like, oh, it's just another black man. I've had fake notes and been like, oh, sorry, I've with Like, because it's, it's circulation, it's what happens. Yeah. It's what happens. I'm sure he's not got a factory at home that he's printing out fake notes and trying... ah, uh, Yeah.
1: You get fake pound coins the whole bloody time. You know, when, you yeah. can't, like, when you're trying to get something out of a vending machine and it's not going through and you're like, oh, shit, well, that's a fake one. I had no idea. Like, no one
0: has yeah. any idea. <laughs> it's so Yeah, and then, you've, then you realise that like, you've got all fake pounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I see the change I was given here. But, you know, yeah. You, but yeah, the fact that when he woke up that morning, he didn't know he wasn't going to come home. And this has all happened because they don't value life it's just, it's hard. And it's hard. I have a younger brother who is an American citizen. His dad's American. And so he travels back and forth from New York. Right. So one day, am I going to put, um, is he going to jump on a flight? And then because he, because he's lost in asking for directions. You know, there's another black man who was lost and asking for directions and knocked on someone's door. My brother's not from New York. He might get lost. He might ask someone to give him directions. They might assume he's a, He's a thug, as good old Trump says, and he might not come home. We come from a good home. He's got a university degree. He's hopefully going to find a job and stop sponging off mum. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I'm not sitting on that resentment. <laughs> <laughs> but he might, he, because of circumstances or because of how, how black men are portrayed in the media, he might not come home. He might not come home. As you said, those people as
1: well, they do have mental illnesses because, you know, I read up a lot on how police in the U.S. get trained. So, for example, in Norway, you have like three years of training before a you become you a need police as well, officer. Yeah, here you have a few years of training before you become a police officer. In the U.S., I think it's like several hours you get a sort of induction or something. And also, just naturally, a lot of veterans come into the police force without getting proper mental health checks so a lot of them are suffering from ptsd and ptsd as well yeah and since since like the the police force is militarized over there they just take it that they're in the war zone again and they act as if they're in a war zone when they're meant to be protecting the people instead of you know whatever else they were doing elsewhere but i do
0: know it's i don't know i don't know sorry so it's my opinion that a lot, of, a lot of them do want to protect and serve. And it's, it's more than a few. It's a lot of bad apples. So I do think that the whole system of training needs to, they need to have like psychological exams before because I know someone actually from when I, because I, I lived in uh, Florida from 17 to 21 and they didn't really suffer anything over there. It was pretty much a blur as well. So that didn't help. And one of them, especially Nate, he was like the high school bully but basically just got given a bunch more power. And that just came out so much. You could just see it. And yeah. So, and I think yeah. that's what Of, I mean, because you, yeah, if you give a bully that much power, what do you expect? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be related to what they... The power can then be manifested into ways what, what they're taught as well by other people around them because bullies are usually cowards. And so if you're a coward but trying to exert power, who are you going to fall on the weak? I'm not saying that black men are weak, but people who you can pick on in like a group and say your sergeant's racist, you're going to try and impress him, be like, I've collared this person, I've collared that person.
1: Yeah. I wanted to go back to your mental health journey. Because as someone who's been around addiction as well, I was wondering what you would want to say to a black woman going through the same same situation as you, going through addiction, not feeling supported, not feeling like it exists. And I guess what would you have wanted to tell yourself years back?
0: First of all, don't date Jacob. He's an idiot. (laughs) Um, Second... You don't have to feel this pain. You don't have to live this pain. There is another way. There is another way and it is so much better than what you think you're going through right now. I would like to tell black women out there that there is so much love and care that we may not have in our lives at the moment that can be found within ourselves instead of trying to find it in others. Mm. That for me has been like a turning point in my recovery. The fact that I don't need to latch on to this guy or the issues with my mum or, or any of that stuff and that I can find all the love that I need. And it's still a journey, don't get me wrong, but I can find the love that I need within myself and be content. Yeah. Therefore, I don't need to go out and use on other thing. I would also like to say that You are loved, even if you don't know it, by others. And other people think the way you do. Jesus, I did not know that. That other people had these issues.
1: Yeah, you're not alone.
0: Yeah, basically, you're not alone. You're not alone. And there are other people who look exactly like you, who are going through the same things that you did, who were raised in the same, maybe love absent household or a home where when gospel music starts on a Saturday morning or you know that's time to get the mop bucket out and start cleaning. Like that's just a thing in a black household. I don't know where it comes from. And that you can do, you can do the candy dance sober. So that you can do it, you will remember it and it will be okay. And you can enjoy life. You can enjoy life. There's so much life to be enjoyed out there. I mean, I'm early in my recovery, but I can see it already. And also, don't Jacob, Jacob, he's a dick.
1: (laughs) And you mentioned you had a few relapses before. So what's different about this stage of your recovery? What is the thing that's really driven the point, hammered in the
0: nail? So in recovery, we rely on a power greater than ourselves in order to kind of guide us, I guess. And that's really what I've been relying on in order to make it through, I guess, and that can be the universe, God, like all these different types of things. It's personal to you. And I think for me, that's what's been like the major difference, the major, major, major difference. Because I was in control and trying to like control, sorry, I'm just thinking about it, oh God, um, and trying to control everything. And I just don't need to do all of that because I can't, I can't control everything. And I don't need to because it's not up to me. It's not up to me to control everything. I am not the center of the universe. That was a hard pill to swallow.
1: It is a hard one to swallow though because as a child, if you've got loving parents, even if that love is sometimes weirdly communicated, you are the center of their universe. So mm. to to grow up as an adult and realize that actually no one gives a fuck about you. Yes. <laughs>
0: Everyone else's character is, like, self-involved self, self involved and doesn't care. Or, like, when you, like, you trip up the escalator, like, on the stairs or something, you're like, oh, my God, everyone saw me. You think about it, like, a year later. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> no one cares. No one cares. No one's like, oh, gosh, dude. Like, no one's sitting around at home being like, do you never guess to what I saw nine months ago? A woman trip up the stairs on the escalator and everyone's laughing. That's not happening. No, not it's
1: happening.
0: not happening. But in <laughs> my head, it's happening. In my head, that so true. about it. That's so true.
1: So I know very well what you mean when you're talking about control and how that's related to addiction. But mm-hmm. could you describe from your point of view?
0: It's so control. Oh, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay, so maybe like going for a job interview and you, you do all the prep for the job interview, you go for the job interview, and then there are two ways to do that. Then. So it's, you can lie, you can manipulate the situation into getting the job you want. You can put stuff on your CV in order to have the outcome that you want which is get that job, or there is to release it to the universe or release it to how it's supposed to be by being honest and just having the outcome be decided for you by the powers that be. Because maybe another job is around the corner that's actually going to be 10K more. It's going to be with people you actually enjoy. It's going to have more good. You could go for a tiny little startup, but if you'd have just... If you'd have just sat down and waited, Google might have called you tomorrow instead of trying to manipulate the situation. So that's what I mean about control. You're like, you've got your idea fixed on this one thing. So you're doing all the things in order to try and control that situation really what you should be doing is just being honest and true to yourself because you never know what's around the corner. And from my experience, because I lost my job in COVID, my experience, it's been I've been able to um, start on this product management course. I've been honest with people that I used to work with being like, oh, I want to change into this. They've taken time out of their day to help me with my portfolio. And it's, it's just its just amazing. And the job that I did want to get was I had controlled, I had lied. I do not speak French. <laughs> I had... <laughs> Yeah, and the job was going to, the job possibly could have put my recovery at risk. It was going to be a lot of events. It was going to be a lot of smooching with these, like, fancy rich people and just like, stuff like, oh, no one wants to get paid to kiss ass and that's what it would have been. Like, it's just not, yeah. and this is actually something I enjoy. I love the tech side of stuff, but, and that's just coming about, like, organically. And that's just one example. Just trying to control how other people either perceive you or control control things that you want for yourself. For me, my higher power has a plan for me. And if I just do the next right thing, things have been working out a bloody okay.
1: That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Having been around recovery for me is just always so uplifting to see someone out of that hole and away from those like goblins, basically.
0: Yeah, actually.
1: (laughs) You've already said some great advice for people but just to summarize if you have one top mental health tip for for anyone you wish to address it to what would what would it be
0: learn to ask for help don't have to struggle alone don't have to carry the world on your shoulders people are, there are so many things out there even if you don't suffer with addiction like I do you can go to so many platforms and these people don't care about creed race religion you will be accepted and you don't have to do this alone. you don't and you don't have to suffer in silence you do not have to suffer in silence. People are there and willing to listen to you. It's, and then no matter how small you think it is. like I had a small bout of depression in my early 20s and I thought I got over it and it was fine, but it snowballed to the highest extreme because I didn't think I was worthy enough to go to for these little problems. And, and I was, I just didn't know it at the time. You are worthy, people are there to listen, don't suffer in silence and learn to ask for help.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Theo. That yeah, that hits home for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into it, but thank you so much, mm-hmm. and for coming on and dedicating your time and have a, have a lovely yeah. evening. And thank you so much. You
0: too. Thanks so much. This was really this was really fun. It wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. You have a very calming presence. I want to thank
1: Theo for. Coming onto the show, this was our first time meeting and it was so amazing of her to open up to me the way that she did. Over our our very first meeting, it's very strange to jump into a Zoom call not knowing the person on the other end and then to hit the record button and, and ask them very, very personal questions. So I really want to thank her. I also want to thank her for being my final guest on season one. This was the final episode, the finale of season one, and I I can't believe that it's been 12 weeks that At Home in the Mind has existed. But don't fret, there'll be a bonus episode next week with my dear friend Sam, who is a clinical psychologist. This episode was meant to be aired a few weeks before, but given the events that happened in America and now all over the world with the Black Lives Matter movement... I thought it best to amplify black voices. So that is why you'll be hearing her episode next week and not when it was originally due to be aired. As to season two, I'm not sure when it will start, but I would like you to know that I have lots of exciting guests already lined up waiting for interview. And I will keep you all posted on my Instagram page as to when things are going to start back up again. For one final time this season, I would like to thank... Jamie J for moral and production support. Jenya Granville for emotional and social media support. I would love to give a special thanks to all the guests who had no idea what this show was right at the beginning and deep dived in and had faith in me. Thank you. Special thanks to Faustine for being the first guest on and trying to work it out with me how to do this show. And of course, thanks to all of you, dear listeners, for sticking by me, listening to every episode every week, following my Instagram and liking every post. Thanks to you. It means so much. I'm immensely, immensely grateful to you. I hope to see you again soon for the second season of At Home In The Mind.